welcome back to Eric Likes Animals. I'm Eric Mahan. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you guys are all doing well today. I myself am just getting over COVID and boy did that suck. So I'm so sorry that I missed last week's episode, but hey, I'm back this week and I got a a lot of great things to talk to you guys about, like squirrel fertility drugs, a species hiding in plain sight, saving America's giants, and of course, our featured species. We got a bunch of great things to talk about today, so why don't we get started with some environment news. The gray squirrel has been introduced over in the UK since about the late 19th century from North America, and like many other invasive species elsewhere, they have caused a ton of environment-related damages to the ecosystem, which is not built to have this certain species living there. And with now an estimated 2.7 million gray squirrels living in the UK, the damage can be seen on a fairly large scale. First off, gray squirrels damage trees by ripping the bark off of it and trying to get to the sap underneath, thus hurting the trees or in more extreme cases actually killing the trees themselves. They do like to go after younger trees more often than not, and that stunts the ability for the forest to rebound, and many trees don't even get the chance then to grow. The other big issue is that they are causing major problems to the smaller native red squirrels. For one thing, they are outcompeting them, being much bigger and stronger, so they're getting all the best nuts. But more importantly, they are also spreading a disease called squirrel pox virus, which is deadly for red squirrels, but do not harm the gray squirrels. So this is a major issue. So scientists are done with the uninvited guests and plan to start vaccinating these squirrels with a vaccine that restricts the hormones of both males and female squirrels, creating a population of squirrels that can no longer breed and would just naturally disappear, which many scientists consider more effective and more humane than just going out and calling, aka killing, as many gray squirrels as they can find. So fingers crossed that this program works and the gray squirrel will lose their nuts. Next up, the largest species of water lily in the world has been discovered, and it's been right in front of us this entire time. Oops. The water lily itself can grow up to 10 feet wide and carry the weight of a full-grown man. It's truly a froggy paradise. These water lilies were recently looked at by scientists from the Royal Botanical Gardens at Kew in London, where these specific types of specimens have been living for 177 years. They were originally believed to be just one of the two already known giant water lilies that were brought back in the UK in 1852. But lo and behold, some of these lily pads were actually a third species of giant water lily this entire time, which Man, I feel bad when I'm looking for my keys for about an hour and I discover that they've been in my pocket the whole time. So I can only imagine workers who have been working with these giant lily pad species for 177 years and finding out, oh, this was a whole different species this entire time. Talk about Hawkward. And then finally, firefighters and park rangers are desperately trying to save America's giant sequoias at Yosemite from wildfires. A section of this forest in Yosemite is home to some of the oldest and, of course, the biggest giant sequoia trees in North America, with some getting close to 300 feet. And with a 25 to 35 foot spread, that's one big tree. And 
it's taken about a thousand years for these trees to grow to these impressive size, so it would be a true travesty if we were to lose them. It was hoped that the trees would be fine from the fires because these trees are actually made for forest fires. Forest fires are supposed to be a natural occurrence, and some trees even need fires to open up the pine cones that are on them to release the seeds inside. But with the huge shift in the climate and devastating droughts in the area, both of which, thanks to people, as well as what happens a lot of time, the fire that started was also caused by people, whether it be power lines or unattended campfires. But I digress. These fires, no matter how they're created, are now occurring bigger, hotter, and lasting much longer than normal. And even these giant sequoias can't hold up, which is amazing when you look at this tree because these guys have sometimes bark that are two feet thick, but even that cannot protect them against these infernos. So firefighters are, of course, trying to save all the forests, but are paying extra special attention to these older giant sequoia trees. Besides basic things that they would normally do, like cleaning out brush to cut the food source for the fire and putting fire suppressant down, the people protecting these trees have even set up sprinkler systems. And yes, I'm talking about sprinklers you would see in your own yard. I mean, simply get a couple plastic flamingos or a gnome or two out there, and it would probably look just like your backyard, just with a giant tree in the middle of it, of course. But these sprinklers are there keeping the area around the trees nice and wet just in case the fires were to get too close that it wouldn't be able to hopefully reach the trees themselves being that the area is so wet. So hopefully these will spare our amazing giant trees. And that is your environment news. So for today's species, I want to talk to you guys about an animal that actually became a bit of an internet sensation from only a 30 second video. But with that short video, it quickly earned the title World's Cutest Frog. And of course, I am talking about the desert rain frog. The video I'm talking about can easily be found on YouTube and is normally labeled with the words World's Cutest Frog or Desert Rain Frog. And it's about a 30 second video. And what's happening is this frog in it is making this very high-pitched little call and being very puffed up. And, well, everyone seeing it thinks it's extremely cute. Now, there are about 20 species, actually, of desert rain frogs out there. So I chose to focus on one of them, and specifically the Mozambique desert rain frog. The Mozambique desert rain frog is found in central to South Africa, from the Democratic Republic of Congo and Tanzania all the way down to South Africa. It lives in open woodlands and grasslands and normally prefers well-drained, sandy-soiled areas. It's not a very big frog. It can be anywhere from 2 to 2.5 inches or 5.08 to 6.35 centimeters long when it's full-grown, and only weigh about 0.4 ounces or 11.34 grams. But these little frogs can live up to about 15 years. The colors on them are about a yellowish brown as a base color with sometimes darker or even red markings on them. They have a very short face that almost looks like a grumpy old man with a ball-shaped body and very stumpy little legs. It really looks like a grumpy balloon with short legs. Now, these stumpy legs and huge body make this frog really not have the ability to hop. 
but that's okay since most of the time it would never need to do so. The reason being is the desert rain frog spends most of its time buried in wet sand. And though its body doesn't look great above the ground, I mean, it's no summer bod, that's for sure. But underneath, he is a perfect little digging machine. The desert rain frog stays down below the ground for most of the day. With the hot, dry conditions of Africa's central and southern area, not really the best for any normal amphibian, since most amphibians need a slightly moist environment. Luckily for the Mozambique desert rain frog, they are not a normal amphibian. With shovel-like feet and a body perfect for digging, it can slide down into the wet sandy areas and rest from the hot days that the sun can produce. But sometimes even the night conditions are not ideal either. So they still won't come out and can stay in their burrow for months, waiting till they feel comfortable enough to come out. Sort of the ultimate introvert. Hello? Hey guys, what's up? Yikes, you want to go out tonight? I don't know. Yeah, I know it's been months since I left my burrow. Hey, listen, I just peeked outside and it feels like only 30% humidity. I I only go out unless it's 31% humidity, okay? Yeah, yeah, okay, sounds good. Yeah, maybe tomorrow, maybe. Okay, see ya. Ugh. Perfect. Now I can go back to the important things. Staring at my sand wall. They can come out on clear nights, but for the day, it normally at least needs to be foggy or, of course, raining. Hence why he's part of a group called Desert Rain Frogs. Because for the most part, people never see them unless it's raining or, like I said, at least foggy. When they do come out, it's normally to hunt. Most of the time trying to stuff their tiny pudgy face full of things like moths, termites, beetles, and insect larvae just in case they might not be coming back out for a while. Another main reason for them to come out, of course, is breeding. Now, many of the desert rain frogs will burrow near each other, probably due to wet sandy areas hard to come by, so they all kind of cluster together in these regions. But hey, it's also probably very convenient when you have short little legs that you don't have to walk very far to find a mate. And they actually may start speaking a little to each other while in the burrows themselves, making those little squeaks that made them so famous to actually chat with each other through the sand even before they meet up. Hey, are you still there? Yeah, I'm still here. Oh man, I can't wait for the rains to come so we can meet already. Like, totally, I know. I'm so excited. I might just dig through this sand right now to get to you. I'm going to take you to my favorite place to find termites. It's truly the bomb. And then afterwards, the real fun can be begin. Yeah, then uh, we can try to find some beetles. Ah, oh, boy, that's going to be awesome. No, you idiot. Not food related. Oh, right. Uh, I got you. After food, we should see if we can find a puddle and sit in it. That always is real nice. Ugh. No. After dinner, we can dig a hole and lay some eggs. Oh, yeah. Of course. I knew what you mean. Duh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I knew that. Mating will take place in the spring after a good soaking rain. 
The males will make their squeals above the ground, trying to convince a female to come over. When a female is interested, she will come over, and the male will grasp the female with his front legs. Then the female will position herself over a nest chamber they dug, and will start to lay her eggs. The male will fertilize these eggs as the female lays them into the chamber, which is normally just set below the soil surface. Normally, she will lay anywhere from 20 to 25 eggs, and both parents will actually stay near the nest to protect them till they hatch in about six to eight weeks, which is an extremely long time for a frog. Okay, especially since some frog tadpoles will actually hatch out of their eggs only after being laid a couple days earlier, and that's the trick. You see, with no real bodies of water nearby, they don't actually have anywhere for a tadpole to grow. So what hatches out of these eggs is actually just a mini version of the adult, not a tadpole, and that's why it takes so long for these eggs to hatch out. The frog skips the tadpole stage, which is normally referred to as direct development, and all of this is because, well, there's nowhere for them to develop in a tadpole stage. So that's why it takes so long for the eggs to hatch out. And in about a year or so, those young froglets themselves will become sexually mature and start singing the song of their ancestors to find a mate—a very high-pitched squeal song, indeed. But the sexiest song the desert rain frog knows. It's also the scariest song it knows, being that this is also used the high-pitched squeal that is to try and scare away any potential predators off. Now there is nothing specifically that targets the Mozambique desert rain frog. Especially because it's not out that often, unless it's raining, and they're very, very small and fairly well camouflaged little guys. But they aren't toxic, so really any predator strolling along, whether it be a bird, a snake, a lizard, other frogs, or heck, even a hyena or a lion, if it's bored, I guess, could try and make a tiny little snack snack out of these little guys. Because what the heck? But for the most part, there's not anything that seems to specifically target hunting these guys. That is, if their mighty squeal, battling cry, doesn't scare them off first. But if that mighty squeal doesn't work, the rain frog will then run back into its burrow, or well, quickly walk. They can't really run too well. And once inside the burrow, they will puff up to a point that is extremely difficult then for the predator to be able to remove them, like the professional introvert they are. It will take a crowbar and a stick of dynamite to get them out of their home. Okay, probably not that much, but you get the picture. So, how is this stubborn frog then doing population-wise? The IUCN red list has them labeled as least concern, but unfortunately, population trends is labeled as unknown. I mean, it is pretty difficult trying to figure out how a population is doing when they spend most of their time underground. However, other desert rain frog species in the similar areas that have a much smaller area to study are listed, unfortunately, as near threatened. With the main threats being development, like housing and farming, taking away habitats and redistributing water to human needs, and taking it away from wild animal population needs. But another big issue causing the decline of these frogs, and the main one I wish to talk about today, is diamond mining. Yes. Besides all the conflict issues you might have with diamonds, another major issue with diamond mining in Africa is it's taking away the habitats of the Mozambique desert rain frog, as well, of course, many other animals. 
So one of the more obvious impacts of a mine is that they cut down all the vegetation and dig a big hole in the ground. Not just affecting the place where they dig, but they also have to put that soil somewhere, which can cause issues alone because, well, they'll dump all this excess soil and vegetation pieces they cut down in other areas. And I mean, if you're a little tiny frog that's sitting in your hole in the ground, you're a pretty good digger. But if all of a sudden a couple dump truck full of soil and vegetation get dumped on your burrow, you might be in big trouble. The other major issue is the redistribution of water for mining. A lot of times these mines will use water jets to clean the soil away to expose the diamonds, taking away a ton of water that animals normally can use just so you can find some shiny rocks. And with all that water running, it ends up picking up all the trash and chemicals of the mine, which then gets normally swept away. Mines will also use acid and other chemicals a lot of time that leaches back into the environment. Some reports have stated that pollution in rivers and other waterways near these mines have increased 36% with acid-related chemicals, a main chemical for diamond mines. And this happened between just 1956 to 2003, which has put a lot of stress on the ecosystem. So what can we do? I mean, the simple part is stop buying diamonds. I mean, the only reason they're as expensive as they are is because we said that they should be for a shiny rock. Remember, it's just a shiny rock. Anyway, and if you still want a shiny rock that looks like a diamond, but actually technically shines much brighter than a diamond, then get a moissanite ring or jewelry instead. Moissanite, which is a lab-created diamond, is more affordable, so ladies, your man can get you a much bigger rock for your wedding ring, and it shines brighter than a diamond, so it will be even tougher for your friends to look away. And it's much more eco-friendly for the environment, so you're not a jerk. Now, the slightly more difficult part is also how to help the locals who would lose these jobs due to the stop of mining to get new jobs. I have touched on this before, but let me state it again. We will never make a major impact in conservation if all we do is take away jobs and not find replacements. We want people to want this, by the way, but conservation a lot of times is a wealthy or better off financially person's game. When people are desperate and need this job to feed a family and it's the only thing around, yeah, conservation people look like douchebags. And Why so often the best long-term conservation success stories always involves working with the community and figuring out better, more eco-friendly jobs so no one even misses their old jobs because, well, their life is much better. So what jobs? Well, you can have them fix areas damaged by mining, game wardens, or environmental tourism are always popular. Or I think a nice trade-off is build the place that makes these moissanite diamonds there. Train locals how to do it and have a lab that employs all the miners so they don't lose pay and can have much better working conditions. Because what's going to be better working in a comfortable lab or a dangerous, dug, not very safe pit of death looking for a shiny rock? Probably the lab, right? Because in the end, there really is no need to be digging up and popping these shiny little rocks out of the ground. 
because the only thing that should be popping out of the ground in these regions should be our good friend, the Mozambique Desert Rainfrog, coming out after a nice rain to say hey. And that's our show. Thank you guys so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed hearing about the Mozambique Desert Rainfrog. As always, make sure to check me out on Facebook and Twitter. Always great places to reach out if you have any questions or comments or just want to say hey. Also, you can always reach me at ericlikesanimals at gmail.com. Well, I think that's about it. So thank you once again for listening. And remember, don't be a dick to the Desert Rainfrog and just get a fake diamond. It looks a lot better. See ya!